Welcome back to another episode of LA Confidential. My name is Chauncey Talese, and I read about the soon-to-be ex-Super Bowl champion LA Rams for LAFBnetwork.com. It is a fantastic website to check out all our wonderful playoff coverage and draft coverage. Uh, LAFB is, of course, brought to you by our friends at Bet Online. Use code BLEAV for 50% off your first bet. Now, today's a very special episode. The Oscar nominations for Tuesday, and who better to talk about it than film critic and sometimes sports writer Noah Gattel. Noah, how are you? I'm great, Chauncey. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. I mean, you're a, you're a fellow awards nerd, and I rarely get to talk about this with my own co-host because he doesn't watch movies. So, <laughs> I love the Oscars. I hate the Oscars. I feel everything about the Oscars. I feel like we're going to have plenty to talk about. I know. Well, the nominations for Best Picture specifically, I thought were a pretty good swath of nominees. I mean, I haven't seen all of them, admittedly, but it looks like a good representation of where movies were in 2022. Well, let me ask you this, Chauncey, because I listened to your episode with... Um, our, our mutual friend, Mr. Rosen, uh, and you, it seemed like you had not seen very much at that point. Have you caught up on some of these by then? A little bit. So I think from that, I think when we spoke, when I spoke with Dave, I hadn't seen Avatar, which I have. I've seen Banshees. Um, I've seen Top Gun, of course, because who hasn't? Um, I've seen like, uh, oh, um, and I've, I've seen four of the, uh, four of the 10. I'm work. I'm clearing off like three of them this weekend because Tar hits Peacock on Friday. I'm finally going to get to watch everyone all at once, and then I'm going to uh, rent the Fable ones. Well, I don't judge you at all for having not seen some of these because one of the trends that I think has been super clear is that these movies are long. There are not <laughs> a lot of ninety-minute movies in the mix here. I think most of these are over two hours. Several of them are over two and a half hours. Like it's just not easy to to squeeze them in. No, like my day job gets really crazy in the wintertime. So it's like really hard to squeeze stuff in. And plus I got football, I'm covering football. So that was really tough. Yeah. So I, it was a miracle just seeing Avatar and Banshees on the same day. And <laughs> Banshees is only because it was on HBO. No, I totally understand. I mean, I, I, I like getting my money's worth. You know, I, I, a long movie can be good sometimes, especially if it's well paced, you mm -hmm. know, like. I'm a huge Wolf of Wall Street fan. And yes, that's a, it's a three hour movie that feels like it's 90 minutes and that's the best, you know, but some of these movies felt pretty long. I thought I, you haven't seen Tar yet. Tar feels pretty long. <laughs> I had a I have a feeling because that's the vibe I've been getting. But like I I'm still excited to see it. I mean, I'm all for a Kate Blanchett towering performance. Yeah. And I heard it's just beautifully shot and um, actually has some very interesting stuff to say. Um I, I I know everything at once is like about two twenty, and so is yeah. Fablemans. Yeah, exactly. Fablemans flies by. I wouldn't worry about that one. Everything ever all at once is like if you dig their maximalist vibe, you know, like where they're throwing things at you every three seconds. It actually felt to me a little bit like kind of a, a late season Simpsons episode where it's just like okay, it's reference after reference, gag after gag, really fast, but for two hours and twenty minutes. So if if that frequency is like appealing to you then i think it'll it'll fly by for you it as well very much is then you're all set i mean i was pleased with avatar that kind of flew by for me but that's because i was in a theater i mean i couldn't imagine watching that at home and doing that though that that would be really tough you know i saw the first avatar in the theater like everyone else and i never once revisited it at home because i just thought there's no way it's ever going to measure up to that and and It'll probably be the same case with this one as well. I wasn't as high on it as everyone else. I really did like that that middle section where mm -hmm. they're just hanging out in the ocean. Um, the the beginning, I think they could have they could have cleaned that up a lot. In general, I think they probably could have chopped off like twenty to thirty minutes, and I would have liked it a little more. But you know, the spectacle of that middle section was probably worth it. 
Mm-hmm. Like the second they go to water, you're like, oh, Jim That's did great. it again. Yeah. Like, Jim did it, man. <laughs> don't bet against Jim and don't bet against Jim in water. You know, no, I mean, nope. he gets it right every time. Exactly. And even if it's retroactively right, like with The Abyss. Oh, I love The Abyss. That's a great movie. So starting with the Best Picture nominations, how do you think they did overall with that group of 10? Well, look, you know, I've put out my top 10 and there's not a lot of crossover there. In fact, I think there's only one movie, uh, two movies uh, in their top 10 that matches mine. And that's The Fablemans and Top Gun Maverick, which I had at number two and number four, I think, on my list. But, you know, my taste runs a little more esoteric. I had some very small movies on my list, like uh, The Eternal Daughter and To Leslie, which we'll probably be talking about at some point later <laughs> in the podcast, uh, which I really liked. Uh, but, you know, overall, I think it's a strong list in terms of, of like, you know, kind of covering a number of different bases. They had some pretty art house stuff like tar is definitely not a movie for everybody a lot of people are gonna have a hard time with that movie um women talking is not a movie for everybody it's you know very talky uh, so some people don't <laughs> don't like that um and then but you've got you know you got huge blockbusters too i mean you've got top gun maverick you've got avatar elvis was pretty much a blockbuster as well and if you're gonna have i wasn't crazy about elvis neither was i yeah, but if you're gonna, I feel like if you're gonna have a musician biopic m- movie in this mix, I'd rather it be something kind of weird like Elvis than something like Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I think I think we're, we're like moving in the right direction on this stuff <laughs> at least. Um, you know, Triangle of Sadness was a weird one to me because I like that director a lot. I really love Force Majeure, and I liked The Square quite a bit as well. But Triangle of Sadness, I, I just I didn't love. I didn't see why he did it the way he did with these three different sections that are mm-hmm. kind of, you know, really, they feel separate from each other in a lot of ways. And there was some stuff in it that I liked, but I didn't think it worked as a movie. And, you know, I think Triangle of Sadness was probably one of the big surprises in these nominations that it was nominated, not just for best picture, which was a little bit of a surprise, uh, but also best director, you know, 10 movies get in best picture, but only five get in best director. So the Academy really liked Triangle of Sadness a lot. Although for some strange reason, they didn't make room for Dolly De Leon in supporting actress, who is to me and to a lot of other people, the best part of the movie. It's just a little strange that they love the movie so much, but didn't like her who most people thought would be its only nomination. Do you think Jamie Lee Curtis took her spot? I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis was, I think she was seen as more likely uh, than the other actress uh, whose name I'm forgetting right now. What is her name? Um, Stephanie uh, Sue. Stephanie Sue, thank you. Um, so I think it's maybe it's more that Stephanie Sue took her spot than Jamie Lee Curtis. Although if you ask me, she's much better in the movie than Jamie Lee Curtis. I think going into the nominations, she was still seen as more unlikely. So she probably got that fifth fifth spot. Well, yeah, and it's, it's kind of a weird thing because like with uh, Triangle of Sadness, it feels like um, that director it was a Ruben Osteland. Is that how you yes. pronounce his name? Something like that. I Nailed think. it. Allison <laughs> Williams and I heard produce our rehearsed pronunciation. All right, it seems like one of those like a, it's time nomination. Like it's been steadily building over the last decade, especially as like the directors branch in particular has gotten more international. That's like, that's probably right. I mean, there he. This is not technically an international film, I think, because it's in the English language. Mm-hmm. But he's certainly an international director, and I think of it as an international film, and that. It, 
by that metric, we had two international films in Best Picture between this and All Quiet on the Western Front. So I think you're right that, you know, the influence of the international part of the voting body is definitely growing. Oh, yeah. Like since 17, that's really because like Del Toro wins uh, for Shape of Water 17. Then you get Coron the next year. And then yeah. and then Bong is like the ultimate pinnacle of that. Yeah, and there were some other ones like uh, Paul, 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 yeah, Pawlowski, whatever his name is, <laughs> for uh, Cold War. You know, and in a weird way, I think maybe everything, everywhere, all at once, it shows the influence of that branch as well. Given that you know part of it does take place internationally, and you know uh, she's such a she's such a, a force in international cinema. Why do you think that everything or all everything ever all at once resonated so deeply with the Academy? Getting eleven nominations is kind of crazy, considering back in April we're like, I don't know if this will even like make it. And then it became a huge hit, but it stuck around. Like, why do you think that is? Well, I think a few reasons. I think one is that it has a good narrative, right? I mean, when mm -hmm. it comes to awards uh, season, so much of it is about the narrative you can build. It helps these voters kind of figure out, you know, so so little of it is about the content of the movie, uh, just about like what this movie is, like what is the story of this movie. And everything, everywhere, all at once has that sort of underdog narrative that voters really respond to. You know, I think last year, the reason Coda ended up winning was because it was a complete underdog. It was a Sundance movie. It was not really even considered a best picture contender until very late in the race. And when we reached that stage of the, the season in which voters were looking for an alternative to Power of the Dog, Coda was right there waiting. You know, it had the it had the issue with it was it had the social issue being that it was about hearing impaired people and starred actually hearing impaired actors. Um, and it was this little movie that could and they really responded to that and everything everywhere all at once has kind of had that narrative all year. You know, it made way more money than anyone thought it would make. It caught on with the culture more than anyone thought it would make and than, than it would. And what's really remarkable about it is it, is it sustained that underdog uh, character, even as it has been dominating award season. So the really interesting thing for me to watch over these next five, six weeks, whatever it is, is can it hold on to that underdog narrative all the way through to the Oscars? Or is there gonna, become a moment that we usually see every year where voters start to look for something else and what other movie could kind of take the reins and say, no, actually, I'm the underdog. I think it's gonna be very hard for somebody to unseat them if they're looking for a better underdog. But on the other hand, it's very rare that a movie will sustain being the front runner for this long. So it'll be interesting to watch. Exactly. For me, Coda felt also just like a reflection of like, hey, this was just a very nice movie after a year and a half of just darkness and I don't know if like movies will still exist in like two years. Yeah. And this is just an old school like family dramedy and got doggone it made me feel good. Cause that's how I felt when I saw it on Apple. Like at the end, you're like, oh yeah, this works. I get it, it resonated with me, but I also haven't revisited it either. It's a tearjerker, you know, mm -hmm. and I think, I think you're right. That is what people wanted, but everything everywhere, everything everywhere all at once is also a family drama in a lot of ways. I mean, it's got this whole other angle. It's a multiverse movie. It's a Kung Fu movie. It's, it's a million things at once, like the title says, but at its core, it is this multi-generational immigrant story that I think a lot of people can relate to. So if you're a voter who wants a movie that's going to make you feel good, which I think is a lot of them, you know, you're probably not going to vote for tar, 
you're probably not going <laughs> to vote for women talking. Although I guess I, maybe some women find that empowering. Um, Everything Ever All at Once is definitely a feel-good movie. So it, it's got that going for it as well. It just has so much going for it. Yeah, and I you were talking about what could unseat it because I think the Fablemans had its moment, but I don't think it's winning picture. It seems like a Spielberg director only play at this point. And yeah. like Banshees doesn't, it, it seems like it's embraced by the acting branch, which is a very powerful branch as we've learned with Andrea Riseborough. And I, but I don't think that movie, as much as it's beloved, I don't think it could unseat it either because it's not a happy movie. Like it's not one that, I, I, you know what I mean? Like it's not. Oh yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I I've seen it twice now and both times when the movie ended, I just, I kind of felt terrible. Like I was, <laughs> I was unhappy. I was angry and it has a lot of laughs in it. Like it is a comedy, I guess, but mm -hmm. it, I think it leaves the viewer in a very bleak place, which, um, which is okay. Uh, but, you're right. I mean, that's probably not like if voters walk away from that movie feeling like crap, they're not going to be inclined to put it number one on their ballot. No. So that's why I think it's uh, everything everywhere is just going to cruise because there isn't anything like Maverick. It doesn't seem like there's enough love for it because it didn't get that many below the line uh, nominees as people thought. And Cruise yeah. certainly didn't get that best actor th nomination people thought maybe could have sort of happened. Yeah. No best actor, no best director. No best cinematography. cinematography. Yeah, that was really surprising to me because a lot of critics groups, in, including a couple that I'm a part of, gave best cinematography to, to Maverick. So I think you're probably right. Um, which, yeah, I mean, maybe everything ever, everywhere all at once is just going to cruise. And the fact that they did so well in these nominations, you know, better than really anyone predicted. There were some categories where it was not even predicted to be in the mix, like best song, for example. Or, and uh, and it ended up there. So there's just clearly widespread and deep support for this movie. And, you know, we've said this before, like, uh, you know, last year, nobody was predicting Coda at this time. But so anything can happen. But it's just very hard to imagine something knocking it off its perch right now. Exactly. And what do you think this this group of nominees says about where movies are in the year, in the year 2022 and over the last couple of years? Do you think there's it's a there's a trend or do you think there's a there's a narrative with all of these or or just this is the movies they picked? Well, you do kind of see it's always hard with with a group of 10 to like really mm -hmm. pull any one bit of analysis out of it, because the way it usually works is there's a little something for everybody. So I think what this shows you, it, it kind of shows you like what the audiences are for movies. You know, mm -hmm. there isn't one anymore. We're not a monolith audience and we probably never were, although we, we thought we were at a certain time. So I think I think what we see here is, you know, we see the blockbuster audience, the people who want to go see franchise films. They're represented here with Top Gun Maverick and Avatar. The people who want to go and like go to a concert movie, you know, these are becoming more and more popular, these musician biopics, they have Elvis. I think everything ever all at once is, is the younger audience. I mean, this is not a superhero movie, but it's it, it pulls a lot from superhero movies. It is a multiverse mm -hmm. movie. It's quirky. It's it, it has the you know, it's about an Asian family. So you have a sort of more open minded liberal audience there, you know, and then you have the hardcore art house audience who would like something like Tar and, and maybe Banshees of Sharon. And then the Fableman sort of represents uh, to me this older audience. Uh, Spielberg is one of these old maestros from the 70s. He's been around forever. He's still awesome. A lot of people have never heard of the Fablemans, as we saw from that Jeopardy clip that, that went around a, a few days ago. <laughs> <laughs> but 
for a certain crowd, you know, there are certain, um, you know, there's a retirement community down the street from me and a movie theater right next door and they go to movies all the time. They're going to go see the Fableman. So they're represented as well. And I, it's this is the reason that they made it 10 mandatory movies is they wanted more people tuning into the Oscars. And this way, you really do have a little bit of something for every kind of movie lover. Yeah, and this is better than like last year when we tried to shoehorn Spider-Man in for like five minutes. This seems like a better version of, well, we need to get more populist movies because, you know, Elvis is a biopic, but it was a huge hit with a bunch of crossover, both with like, you know, an older generation who grew up on Elvis and young and younger generations who really love Austin Butler. Yeah. So that like that's cool. I mean, Maverick, even though technically it's a sequel and it's it's a franchise, it was still like an old school blockbuster that people loved. And like Avatar, you know, is the gigantic spectacle. And I think like because pe- I've seen people complain. I'm like, well, what did you want? Because like, I think the movies are OK. Like they're all OK. You know, like we're not yeah. uh, we're not in the dark place we were last year. We were like really scrambling for that 10th nomination, like maybe Spider-Man, which I liked, but I wouldn't have put it in Best Picture. No, definitely. I mean, I think it does get a little um a little, you know, towards the end of this list, like there are a couple movies here that most people have probably never heard of. You know, I, I think most people do not know about women talking. A lot of people still don't know about Fablemans or, or, or Tar. But you've got five or six movies here that, you know, your average moviegoer probably has heard of. Um, what, but one question I have for you, you know, because I think you're probably a little more tuned in to like um, comic book movies and, and superhero mm-hmm. movie fans. There is no Marvel movie here. There's no DC movie here. Do you think that type of fan is satiated or satisfied by Avatar being here or by everything everywhere all at once? Or do you think there are some folks, you know, the folks who voted for, you know, Zack Snyder last year, (laughs) are those folks going to see this list and say, no, F this, there's nothing for me? I don't think so, because they also have like the Batman got three nominations, which was I thought it'd be a little bit more, but that's still very cool for that movie to get three nominations. And then you have Angela Bassett, who's like a, basically the lock to win Best Supporting Actress. I mean, that's better if you're a Marvel fan than um, a Best Picture nomination, because it's more of a vindication of what you like, in a way. Yeah. Because it's like, hey, like how like the MCU finally got an acting nomination. Like, see, we're not just like a joke. We didn't ruin cinema because they didn't. Netflix did. But um, <laughs> that's my that's like my one hobby horse is that Netflix is actually the real reason why most uh, people think cinema died, not because of Marvel. I think that's but, fair. And I think I think your point is a good one. I mean, she's probably going to win. So to actually see a win for a comic book movie, for a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. that's that's more impressive than like a token nomination out of 10. You know? Yeah. Like when the first one was up for best picture, it's like, well, that's because this thing was just a phenomenon and like people like Coogler and like, okay, fine here. You know, it felt like a bone was being thrown and then it won some craft categories, which is cool. But the Marvel people probably don't pay attention to that as much, but this is like a big deal. Cause it's, Hey, established actress is getting her legacy Oscar for Wakanda forever, which I liked more than most. I, I, I but I admit, I know why people didn't like it and I get it. But it's still a very cool win. Well, I didn't see it, I have to admit. Uh, but I love Angela Bassett. I mean, mm-hmm. she's owed an Oscar for, you know, What's Love Got to Do With It from yes. years ago. So I don't think, you know, whether you like comic book movies or not, I think everyone's going to be cheering for that award. And and that's really cool. If everyone wants to think they're cheering for Wakanda mm-hmm. Forever, too, then, then so be it. That's fine. Yeah, it's like when Ledger got the Joker Oscar. It's like it was enough crossover tour. And I were like, oh, really? He won for the Joker. It's like, hey, you know what? That's a great win. Like, yeah, Joaqu- I- 
like Joaquin's was was greeted with like, okay. <laughs> Whereas Angela Bassett, like, there's no one that's gonna be like, oh, well, this sucks. It's like, hey, good for her. I think that's right. And whether they're voting for her because of that movie or not, it does sort of knock down a door, you know, that makes it easier for another actor to win for a movie like that next year or in a couple of years. And maybe one day down the line for a comic book movie to win Best Picture. Although I'm not sure if they're getting mm. I'm not sure if they're getting better or worse right now. So it's hard to say. It's going to be an ebb and flow thing because like I do think COVID really messed messed them up because they had to fast track a bunch of stuff. Mm. Like you think like you saw like uh, what Dr. Strange had a lot of reshoots Thor they had to cut down like about 20 minutes, which is why it seemed um, as disjointed and not as good as the as Ragnarok. So I think they're getting their footing back. Like I, I honestly think after this year, you'll start to see like, oh, they got their groove back. There'll be a lot of those pieces. I can I can almost guarantee because that's well, how they go. I mean, then that could definitely lead to some more nominations because then they sort of are like a comeback story again. Right. You know? And the Academy loves that. Exactly. And also like with um, with Angela, ba I was going to say, well, with Angela Bassett, for one, for one thing, I wish Cher had won her Oscar for Silkwood. That way Holly Hunter could win for broadcast news. And then Angela Bassett could win for what's love got to do. With <laughs> I, I don't know if you do this, but I play this game all the time. Like if I'm at work, I'll go on Wikipedia and go, OK, well, what if what if I had switched this? Like how would this what would the domino effect be here? Well, it might lead to like you not being born, so you better be careful. You don't That's want to true. mess around. You don't want to mess around too much with that. That's very true. I was, I, I was born in '89, so I'm like, oh crap! If I mess with the '89 Oscars and give Spike almost everything, then uh, well, I might not even be here. That's a trade-off, you know. Exactly. No, exactly. It almost, it would be worth it. But oh, yeah, I was going to say, like, and Angela Bassett winning is also um, emblematic of just how well Marvel's done at casting these things. Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't work if they don't get the top flight talent. And they not that they're hurting for top flight like acting talent, but now this will be like, hey, Angela Bassett won for Wakanda Forever. I should do this. Like, I think that's I, I think that's something it. I think that's true. Although I do some I do wonder a little bit if if this uh, particular award is a little anomalous. Like, is there something in this award that is also an award for Chadwick Boseman? You know, I mean, is there something about this? movie like they want to find a way to honor this movie because it was about Chadwick Boseman sure. in a lot of ways I mean I always thought Black Panther was a little anomalous in terms of Marvel movies and it, their appeal to the Oscars uh, because it was about something a little bigger you know mm -hmm. I mean it had this whole element of, of of racial identity that none of the other movies had so that always I think made this franchise more appealing uh, to the Oscars and now they have this kind of solemn aspect of honoring Chadwick Boseman and you know maybe the movie wasn't quite good enough for them to put it in best picture and honor him that way but I do think recognizing the movie this way is somehow a recognition of that loss as well and that's something that maybe can't be replicated by another Marvel movie in the future very true and by the way Wakanda Forever does like double down on like uh, colonialism was that was an atrocity because like the Namor character that's really steeped in that right like they I really get like when they get that. in his origins and they like where he first comes up to land you're like oh shit Kugler went there all right well good I mean maybe I will watch it one day and, and experience that for <laughs> it'll myself be on, it'll be on Disney plus uh, I think February 1st that's kind of what I've been waiting for. There you uh, go. I know it's probably better seen in the theater, but um, I, I will watch it when it's when it's on my couch. 
Uh, yeah, and um, but like 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 we were saying before, the like like Batman and Wakanda Forever getting a whole bunch of below the line nominations, and in Wakanda's case, top line. Like it's it's still a wide swath of things that appeal to everybody, which they've been struggling to do the last few years. But I think this is like a platonic ideal of what they what the ceremony wants, like what ABC wants. Absolutely. I mean, and I was surprised that Batman didn't get a uh, score. I know. Yeah. That was I, even before I saw the movie. I listened to that score because people were raving about it, and I, I just think it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Did they get him for cinematography? It did, right? No, um, I don't think so. I'm just no, it didn't. Right it was no. like makeup, what makeup, sound, and uh, visual effects. I think. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, it's kind of what you expect from a good Batman movie, right? I mean, mm-hmm. those categories make sense for it, but I thought the score was kind of out of this world. And I know he, he is. He is a great like history that composer and he, he deserves one for sure it's weird because like a, a, G, a giacchino i thought would have been like in the death plot zone at this point because he's just done so much good work but i think i don't know since he won his oscar for up they haven't like thought about him and he's done like better work since and up's a great score absolutely and original score i mean it's a pretty stacked category this year you've got some like some stalwarts john williams is there carter sure. Burwell is there herwitz is there for babylon and the All Quiet on the Western Front score is very kind of um, forward in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very conspicuous, so that sure. makes sense. Everything Ever All at Once is the one that I would have said, you know, I kind of don't even really remember the score from, from mm-hmm. that movie. That would have been the place to put Giacchino, I think. But, again, it just speaks to how much the Academy really loves Everything Everywhere. Now, the obviously, the Academy's um, gloriously imperfect. So where do you think they whiffed on? Well... Look, you know, the one of the big stories coming out of the nominations is the absence of uh, women directors, mm-hmm. the absence of black actors in the lead category, specifically in lead actress. Yeah. And I, I think that's I think it's a really, really fair criticism. You know, it does feel like a little bit of a backlash to the progress that has been made over the last few years. Um, you know, the Andrea Riseborough thing in particular is is telling because, you know, I'm sure your listeners probably know, I won't go into too detail in, in too much detail, but the way she got this nomination was through non-traditional means. Basically, somebody, a friend of the, the wife of the director of the movie, who is an actress. Asked Mary McCormick. Her, Mary McCormack from Private Parts and yeah. Deep Impact, a, a wonderful actress. Uh, she asked her other actor friends to start hyping this movie basically and it was all done through this network of of prominent actors and movie stars and on the one hand that's super cool uh that she was able to get this nomination without relying on a studio to spend millions of dollars on a campaign for her uh and i love andrea riseborough she's my probably my favorite actor and i really liked to leslie but she probably did take a spot from a black actor, either uh, Deadweiler from Till or Viola Davis from The Woman King. And while that's sort of bad enough on its own, uh, troubling enough, I guess, you know, most people are speculating that what Andrea Riseborough did is going to try to be replicated by other actors in the future. Oh, yeah. And I think it's fair to say that black actors in Hollywood probably don't have the same networks of movie stars that a white actress like Andrea Riseborough would have. So... Not only is it sort of troubling in the moment, the precedent is also troubling as well. And I guess it just speaks to sort of the damned if you do, damned if you don't situation black actors are in, which is they often can't rely on studios to promote their work because the studios don't hire them enough. 
Mm -hmm. And they also don't have the networks to run this sort of grassroots underground campaign as well. So I think that's pretty disappointing. I know. I would have thought Viola would have gotten in there just because she is like the exception to the rule because she's like she's really good friends with like Meryl Streep and she's very everyone loves working with her and she's a successful actress and producer. So it just seemed it just seemed weird that the woman can got it blanked entirely. I agree. And, you know, she already has an Oscar, so mm -hmm. maybe there was less of a push to get her another. Uh, but the lack of any nominations for The Woman King is really strange. And I don't think we can blame it entirely on, on racism or no. misogyny because, you know, obviously movies uh, with, with black cast have been nominated before. But I think there's probably something going on where the, the studio sort of dropped the ball and ran, ran a crappy campaign. I think because it's so they're Sony, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think their mistake, honestly, their mistake was they should have put it on Netflix in like December. Yes. Like, got, so like Banshee's got the like HBO Max bump and like, uh, you know, Glass Onion like resurf resurfaced in December. So that got a little bit of momentum going. I think if Woman King had hit like around Christmas on Netflix when everyone's home, then you're going to see you see a bigger groundswell of support because it did well in theaters, but it was like all the way back in September and like a lot had happened since September. That's a great point um, because, you know, for a while I didn't really understand why that made so much of a difference, like putting it on a streaming service because Academy members, they can watch any movie they want at any time. They have their own screening room, but it does seem to make a difference. And I think it's because, you know, they talk to their friends and they talk to their neighbors and their family members who don't have access to the Academy screening room. And I think they get very influenced by what kind of buzz a movie has and, it was very clear that everybody was watching Banshees of Sharon when that movie hit streaming. Yeah, and Glass Onion. Like, when, like I, I, that's all I saw over like between Christmas and New Year's was just Glass Onion takes. Absolutely. And, like, if the Woman King had been like, I don't know, the Friday before New Year's, or like the or that's that'd be Christmas, like the Friday of New Year's Eve, or just drop it on Netflix. Sure. I really think like a lot of their friends and their friends with kids would have like seen it and been, and gone nuts over it because it was like an old school like '90s you know adventure war movie. I think that's a great take. And I would just also say that I think they probably screwed up in other ways that we don't even know. Sure. For this movie to not be in like costume design, like that's yeah. kind of- I don't of think they know what they had. No. I don't know. Sorry. No, they, they screwed up something. I mean, I'm not privy to how these campaigns are run necessarily. I don't live in LA. I don't get invited to that stuff, but uh, it seems for it to not get any nominations just constitutes some sort of major screw up. Somebody should be fired. Exactly, because it's it has a great narrative too. It's like, hey, an old school like mid budget action action movie was a hit. Yep. You know, Viola Davis is a is an A plus movie star. Lashana Lathan is have is continuing her ascent because she's got the Marvels coming up this year, and she was a big breakout uh, star in WandaVision. So it's like, hey, like we have this other new person that's great, John Boyega. You have like, hey, star the Star Wars guy. Like you have a lot of pieces that if in another world, like you could have easily built a lot of stuff off that Gina Prince Blythewood becoming one of the best action directors in the business. And it's the kind of movie the Academy likes. I mean, it's Gladiator. Mm -hmm. It's Braveheart. There's a precedent for this kind of movie. It just is kind of, you know, starring an Oscar winning actor in the lead role. It just doesn't make any sense. No. And the other thing that I found very funny was that as how like Netflix's uh, Oscar uh, campaign or Oscar tent struggled to find anything, which is why probably um, All Quiet on the Western Front ascended as much as it did, because like Netflix technically has it. So that's all they kind of had. Definitely. I think I guess Bardo was the big miss for them. Right. I mean, they would have loved to push that for everything. But that was such a 
a misfire. Uh, I, still <laughs> I still haven't seen it because I don't have three hours for a movie that probably sucks. Yeah, um, that's what I. That's the vibe of getting. I'm like, I don't like Inarito enough to to do that. And I've just, I've what I've heard, it's like the what you don't want in a uh, director examining themselves kind of movie. Ugh, that just sounds like such a drag, you know. Uh, um, know. Maybe you know, it's the kind of movie that like maybe I would go see in a theater and just be like, all right, I've got no distractions. I'm gonna give this my best shot. Mm-hmm. But I know if I try to watch a movie like that at home. I'm going to find myself distracted and then it's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's too late. Exactly. Are there any like movies you were surprised fizzled out as um, like, as awards uh, nominations are drawing closer? Like the whale, I was kind of surprised fizzled uh, out as much as it did. The whale seems like such an obvious Academy movie. You mm-hmm. know, I guess they don't love Aronofsky historically, but it's, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an actor who the Academy likes, who has a great narrative and he did get nominated but typically a performance like that can lift a whole movie, especially when there's 10 slots in Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So I was I was surprised it didn't get a nomination there. And and Hong Chao got nominated as well. So they liked the actors, but not the movie. That seemed a little strange to me. I know. It seemed tailor-made, but like you said, like, yeah, they're not really big on Aronofsky because like the one time they liked him was uh, Black Swan, and that's mostly because that thing was a monster. Like yeah. that thing made over a hundred million dollars, which is um, it's hard, it's hard to yeah, it's hard to believe. Like looking at it in this climate, like for a movie like that to make that kind of money is just unheard of. Well, that whole 2010 lineup, you're just like, damn! Like a lot of yeah. those movies, like The Fighter made bank. I mean, you obviously a Social Network made over a hundred. Like a lot of just like big studio movies or smaller movies make made over a hundred, and or the ones that didn't, like uh, Kids Are All Right, still did very well. Yeah, I mean, the Kids Are All Right. Not only would it not be in theaters it probably wouldn't even be a movie if they made that today. it'd be a tv show yeah it would be yeah. like an, it would be a seven episode hbo series and i wouldn't watch it <laughs> no <laughs> i liked the movie but i would not watch that as a seven episode show exactly yeah. were there any is there anything else of the nominations that really leapt out to you um well i mean i, I guess i'll say i was just happy about a couple of them mm-hmm um, I was happy about Bill Nye in Living and Paul Mescal in After Sun. You know, I don't think either one of them is going to win. No. But, and, and neither one of them I got got any other nominations. Uh, well, Living got one, I guess, for uh, Adapted Screenplay. But uh, those are two really good performances by actors at completely different ends of their careers, you know. And uh, I just, I kind of like to couple those two together as performances from movies that didn't really catch on this season despite being really well liked by pretty much everybody who saw them. Uh, and I like to see them recognized and I'll be, I'll be happy to see them there on, on Oscar night. The other one worth mentioning, I think is Ana de Armas for Blonde. Yeah. I was just going to bring this up. I think it's entirely due to Colin Farrell at the golden globes. When he called her out, when he won his award, he went up there, he turned to Ana de Armas who gave him the award and said, I loved your movie. I cried myself to sleep the night. He spent like the first 20 seconds of his acceptance speech praising Ana de Armas. And I have no proof of this, but I do feel like like people saw that, they noticed it. You could not notice it. And it sort of gave uh, cover for people to say, you know what? I like Ana de Armas. I liked her in that movie. The movie wasn't good. But let's let's throw her up there and let's get a look at her on Oscar. Night. Right, she's been doing great work for a while. Like this was a really difficult performance in what was clearly a difficult environment. Yeah, and she I mean, came out almost of that like a, 
Yeah, it's almost like a wow. We're gonna we're gonna congratulate you for getting through this, you know, because it was a harrowing uh, role, and as you said, like a really challenging movie to be a part of. You had to work with Andrew Dominic for twelve hours a day for <laughs> God knows how long. This is your Purple Heart nomination. I mean, we've seen how he treats the press and the stupid things he says to journalists. I can only imagine like what it's like having to work with him on a regular basis. Yeah, that's he seems like a tough hang. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, and his movies are tough hangs too, you know, so it, it adds up. You know, the other performance I would want to mention is uh, Brian Tyree Henry in Yeah's Way. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that in case we were moving off this topic. But he's so great. And again, he's like a guy everybody loves. Mm -hmm. If you've seen him in Atlanta, if you saw him in uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, it's like kind of hard to not like to watch him and not think this is one of the best actors we have. And Causeway is a movie I think very few people have seen, but I really, really liked it. Um, it's a it's an independent, uh, small drama about a woman played by Jennifer Lawrence who's returning from the the war in Afghanistan and is is a bit traumatized, and she kind of strikes up the, this friendship with the character played by Brian Tyree Henry. And I liken it almost to like a you know, like a before sunrise kind of movie where it's mm -hmm. just, it's just these two people like talking for pretty much 90 minutes. Uh, and they have terrific chemistry. I thought Jennifer Lawrence was excellent in it as well, but it, it's really in, in Brian Tyree Henry's wheelhouse because he gets to just kind of sit there and be and be present and, and talk. And he doesn't do a lot of capital A acting and he has such incredible presence that uh, it's kind of the perfect vehicle for him. And I was really glad to see him honored because I, I feel like nobody saw the movie. No, I know. That's 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 like on my catch-up list because I love both of them and I just heard that's a really nice movie. Um and also, yeah, he does also seem in the category of like he's worked with everybody at this point and yeah. and in big stuff like Eternals or Widows or smaller stuff like Causeway, Child's the Child's Play remake, you know, mm -hmm. you name it. He's been in a bunch of stuff people have seen, and he just generally seems like a good dude. Like <laughs> He really, really does. I, nobody's. I've never heard a bad word about him altogether. And you know, he's not going to win because Kehu Kwan is going to win. Yeah, but that's a cool story. It's an incredible story. I, I can't. I can't think of a, another version of this that has ever happened. Really. No, and, and that's and that's why he's like the lock. I'll, I haven't seen the movie, but I heard he's also happens to be good in it. But like, it's been a really fun seeing him and Fraser do their pre, do their awards tours together. Because like they're really good friends, and they're both genuinely happy when the other one wins, and like it's, that's been cool to see. It's super cool. Him and Fraser, who apparently were in Encino Man together, although yes. I don't, I don't actually remember Kerry Kwan in that movie. Um, but then also Spielberg is at every award stop mm -hmm. as well, so we get all those photo shots of uh, the two of them reconnecting. And um, I don't know, maybe Harrison Ford will be at the Oscars, and we'll get the two of them. And it's just like. I don't know, it just makes you feel really good to see this this man who we knew as a child, you know, 35 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, coming full circle and and being part of all of this again. And, you know, I think he's very good in the movie. It's not like it's not the kind of performance you see and you're like, this guy's winning the Oscar, but they love the movie. And if this is one of the ways they want to honor the movie, I mean, nobody's going to complain about that. Exactly. And it's going to get him more work. I mean, he's already booked for season two of Loki, so that's going to be really good for his profile. Oh, yeah. He's set for a while, I think. And he's, you know, he's a good actor and he fits into a lot of different stuff, I think, that's going on right now. I think I think he'll have a nice little second act of his career. What do you think the most competitive race is going to be? 
Well, that's a good question. Let me take a look here. You know, honestly, I think I think Best Director is pretty competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are saying Spielberg, but I, I don't. I mean, I kind of would not be shocked to see the Daniels just take that one as well. I mean, are they just James L. Brooks it screenplay director and producer? It would not shock me because I feel like the Academy doesn't like the Fablemans quite as much as I liked it and as much as I expected them to like it. And if Spielberg is vulnerable, I think the Daniels have a shot there. And frankly, I think Todd Field has a shot there. You know, they really liked Tar. They only nominated six categories, but they're all big categories. Mm -hmm. And then this is also a category where we have seen the international contingent flex their muscles. So is Ruben Ostland a possibility in Best Director? I don't see why not. Um, I think there's some room there to negotiate and for some things to happen over the next six weeks. Right. And like with Best Actor, because that's the one I'm looking at. I'm like, on one hand, it seems like Austin Butler's got it like sewed up. But on the other hand, like Colin Farrell could make a late surge. And then if like Fraser does win SAG, maybe that still happens. But I don't think so, so much anymore because the whale kind of fizzled. But that's a tough one for me, like Butler you know, or Farrell. You're, you're right, actually. I uh, I changed my answer. I think I think Best Actor is the most competitive because, honestly, I could see any one of those three walking away with it uh, on, on Oscar night. Not Mescal or Nye, or Nye, but Fraser, Farrell, Butler. I mean, obviously, whoever wins SAG is going to become the presumptive favorite, mm -hmm. but that's not going to answer the question definitively. So I think we'll still be wondering. Uh, as we go into Oscar night. Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, because like Fraser, like the, he's got the big narrative going for him. Colin Farrell has like the year, like the decades, a decade plus of good work and just, you know, going super small, but also going super big after being a movie star and kind of having his own like little mini uh, downfall and then coming back. And then Austin Butler, he's just he's just coming on like gangbusters because he's got Dune 2 coming out this year and a bunch of other and like what several other things coming up too. Let me ask you about Austin Butler, though. Do you think all of the noise about how weird his voice is, is that going to like, do you think that hurts him at all? Because honestly, in my eyes, it makes me think he's a little strange. Like it makes me think mm. a little, it makes me think a little less of him on some <laughs> level that he, and also like, you know, he, he said that he, when he was working on the movie, he became so immersed in the character that he didn't speak to his family for three years. And I think that's part of why the accent stuck. But I just wonder if like people look at that and be like, okay, guy, like you're just an actor. Like you, you're taking this a little overboard. I don't think so. Like that just seems more of an internet thing than anything else. Like, I don't think like the actual voters are caring about that. And like, he, they don't have a whole lot of like um, baggage with him or, or he doesn't mm -hmm. have a whole lot of at bats right now. So there's not like, he, he's just kind of almost a blank slate almost, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. I mean, and I think that's why to me, the accent thing is having an impact because it's like, mm. I got to have something to think about this guy, you know? And right. so when I, when I heard that, I go, that's weird and it sort of gets magnified. But you're probably right. The fact that they have no history with him, that's probably a net positive for most Oscar voters as opposed to. Yeah. And it's like, well, this guy's already got a bunch of stuff lined up. Like he's, this guy's clearly a star. Like he did, he killed it on SNL. Like that was like the big start of his Oscar campaign. That movie's played really well because that's another HBO Max success, I think. Like that's mm -hmm. where I saw it. 
Yeah. And it's been like memed and all that stuff ever since. Like he, it seems like he's just got a, enough goodwill to where that stuff won't matter. I mean, if he gets really, um, really weird uh, as the awards tour goes on, then maybe that'll affect him. But I don't think so at this point. It's like it's not bad enough to where it's like uh, Jared Leto stuff, you know? No, I mean, he's from Pasadena and he sounds like he's from Kentucky, which is weird. But you're right. It's not like a moral failing. No. It's, just, it's just a strange thing. Although it's not, now, or it's not an F this guy, like a Leto. Like, oh, really? You like you put rats with. OK, cool, man. Great. Like, yeah, I don't exactly. care. <laughs> exactly. Although Leto still won. So, like, you know, who, who knows? Th- um, that was but all that stuff was after he won. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. There was some baggage even at the time, though, about him. But. You know, I do think now that I'm thinking about it, the thing about Butler that I think is working against him is, yeah, as you point out, he is this kind of hot young actor who's about to burst onto the scene in a major way. But the Academy doesn't normally award young male actors. They do it for women all the time. But I feel like for male actors, they like to make them wait a long time before they give them their Oscar, right? I mean, we've seen, you know, guys like Leonardo DiCaprio, it took until he was in his 40s for him to win his first Oscar. And that makes me think like Colin Farrell and Brendan Fraser probably have a better chance because they fit that mold of people who mm-hmm. have paid, paid their dues a little longer. Sure. But then once in a while, you'll get like, um, you'll get like an Adrian Brody. Like he seems like would be he would be the template. Yeah, because that's an that was a movie that was nominated for Best Picture. That's true, just like this was. And yeah, and he was nominated Best Actor. And he, who was he up, who was well, he up again, against that year, though? Was he up this. against somebody it who was, was like very... All the, all the other uh, nominees for previous winners. He had Cage, Nicholson, mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis, and Michael Caine. And so Daniel Day-Lewis was probably the favorite. Was that was that Gangs of New York? It, mm-hmm. it was like Gangs of New York and then like Jack for About Schmidt, uh, Michael Caine for The Quiet American, yeah. and um, Cage for Adaptation. Yeah, so it was all previous winners, but none of them in the performances or, or movies that like the Academy was crazy about, right? No. I mean, so there was a little bit of an opening for somebody, somebody like him. Right. I'm trying to. I'm going through my head because, like, let's see. Yeah, because after that, like, uh, well, Jamie Fox is is a, also a good example, like, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he had the double nomination that year, which was very strange. But it was like, a, oh, he's like really coming on, like he's not just a comedian. Um, and not to mention, I mean, Jamie Foxx, Rami Malek, I mean, Austin Butler, there's a pattern there as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they like these performances where the guy sings like the guy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think, was there any, oh, Eddie Redmayne, I, I, I think you can slot in that, in that category too. They didn't make him mm-hmm. wait. That should have been Keaton's Oscar, but whatever. That's um, true. um, hold on. The was the year after that, or it was two years after that. So Caprio Affleck. Okay, yeah, they really do not. They really do only do like one ingenue a decade for like males. Yeah, but you 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 cited enough examples to say like that's not disqualifying for him. I mean, Michael Keaton to Eddie Redmayne is pretty comparable to either Colin Farrell or Brendan Fraser to Austin Butler. I mm-hmm. mean, that's he had put in his dues. He was incredibly well liked. Nobody ever had a bad word to say about Michael Keaton, and still. Eddie Redmayne had enough buzz to kind of push him over the top. So sure. Yeah, that could happen here. Why not? Yeah. And it, it just really, and also it just seems like Elvis is super popular. Like it's a, a movies like, and it's not like, you know, top gun popular, but it did very well. Yeah. I don't quite get it, but I, I don't agree. either. <laughs> I don't either. It was one of those, like, I remember watching, I think it was like Labor Day weekend. It came out on HBO and like my wife and I had watched it. And we're like, 
really? There's still like this much time. There's this much to go. Well, that's the issue. Right. I mean, the, the concert sequences are incredible. Yeah, it's everything like, else. Where's the story? Like, why? Like, where are the choices being made in terms of like what we're saying about his life and, and what, the yada yada? Is, yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. Which was weird because it was a two hour and tw like twenty minute movie or two hours and forty minutes, and yet I'm like, they left a lot of uh, meat on the bone. And yeah. they really didn't want to deal with um, Fat Elvis as much. And they didn't want to deal with um, the other stuff. They just kind of hand wave it. And like, here, he's moving again. Well, imagine if they'd done Fat Elvis, then maybe him and Brendan Fraser would split the fat suit. Um, mm -hmm. you know, well, they kind of do, but like not really. No, they didn't really go for it. They, they saved Fat Elvis for the real life footage at the very mm -hmm. end of the, of the movie. Right. And I was like, man, well, that's the interesting stuff. Because that's when like, you know, things really went south and he got into his Howard Hughes stage. And then he because even yada yada his death. Like he yeah, just sort true. of like he's in the car. He says goodbye. And then it's like Elvis lit. Elvis died like two yeah. weeks later. Like, OK. Yeah, it's a real Poochie dad on the way to his home planet mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, it pulled its punches a little bit, I think. I think that's fair. Because it's like a biopic thing where, like, the estate's involved. So, like, you're pretty sure the movie's, like, going to be dinged because of that. Like, Bohemian Rhapsody is the big problem. So it was the Brian May story, not about Freddie Mercury. Exactly. Like, the original version, I'm like, that would have been way more interesting. Like, when they had Sasha Baron Cohen, and it was going to go really into, like, you know, Freddie Mercury being, you know, an early like an early gay icon and brian may's like no that's not the story of queen the story is we after he died we persevered damn it we still tour that's what people care about uh it's ridiculous yeah whenever you hear that uh the estate is involved it's always a bad thing it's like an authorized biography you know? mm -hmm. the, the unauthorized is always far more interesting and yeah, usually he, more truthful. yeah if you want to use the songs we get to control what uh what story you're telling yeah, it's no good. But, you know, the Academy doesn't care. They'll keep nominating these movies. Uh, it I gives know. them a great musical performance to do during the show. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm sure we'll see some sort of Elvis something and uh, everyone will have a good time. Now, what do you last Oscar question before I get to get at you out on baseball? Mm. Um, what do you think is going to be like the dumbest um, award season is going too long narrative uh, takedown of a movie like the dumbest controversy that'll bubble up because we're bored? Oh, that's such a good question because, you know, a few years ago, it was very common for there to be like these fact checking things about mm -hmm. movies based on a real picture, on a real story. We would see these like op-eds in the Washington Post and stuff talking about how they got something wrong. And those have sort of gone away. And now typically we have more uh, like identity politics driven discussions. You know, like I think about what happened with three billboards or something where... <laughs> You know, everyone liked that movie. And then a lot of uh, black critics started pointing out like some racial problems with the movie and everyone turned on it, you know, rightly or wrongly, like that had a real impact. And mm -hmm. so I would be looking for something like that to happen again. Uh, I I have beaten the drum a little bit on what I found to be some casual anti-Semitism and every, everything ever all at once. That but, was an early thing because the Jenny Slate stuff, right? Like that's yeah. what I heard from the beginning. Like from when it was released, that was like an early little thing, but then it went away because everyone was just like, I love the movie. Exactly. There was one critic who pointed it out, uh, Danielle Solzman, and I then saw it and I noticed it as well. And they responded to it. I thought their response was pretty terrible, which was... They said they didn't realize they were identifying that character as Jewish, which mm. didn't really make any sense to me. I mean, they've 
been making movies in Hollywood for quite a while now. I think they're familiar with Jewish stereotypes. <laughs> Uh, but it satisfied everyone else, you know, so that that bubbled up and it went away. I would sincerely doubt that it would come back again. Uh, so I can't identify a, a particular thing, but I would look for something, something like that, something really ugly and unpleasant that's going to make us all very uncomfortable that we'll have to deal with at some point in the next five or six weeks. Right. And like, I think like the couple ones that like had bubbled up a little, but no one cared to like Top Gun being military propaganda. Oh, uh, yeah. like we've already gotten past that one. Oh, uh, we did it 40 years ago for the original Top Gun. We don't need to do it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. Like, I'm trying to think like everything overall once is the one that seems to be most susceptible to that just because everything else is, seems so contained. Yeah. Like tar, like there's no point in taking tar down. Cause that's the whole point of the movie. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. And I saw I saw a pretty dumb tweet earlier today that said women talking was racist because there were no uh, black women. In oh, it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going to catch on either. Uh, if People no. understand what that movie is. And doing. it's not a big enough target to do so anyway, because it's like it's going to be happy to get Sarah Polly her uh, adaption Oscar, which, yay, good yeah. for Sarah Polly. But like I of the front runners, like, I don't know. Is there anything you could uh, take out of the Fablemans and like hand ring it for? I don't think so, because it's such a contained so. store. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping we avoid that, but I know something's going to bubble up. Maybe someone does something dumb during their press tour, like Campion last year. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Like that's someone's going to put their foot in their mouth, like hardcore at a guild thing, and it's going to be, uh-oh. Well, who do you think is most likely to do that? Oh, um, let's see. It could be uh, one of the Daniels. It could. Yeah, that's where my, because I'm like, none of the actor, like Colin Farrell seems like he's got a good beat head on his shoulders. Brendan Fraser, I don't think so. Austin Butler, maybe, maybe. like, mm -hmm. uh, unless they just keep him on a leash. But other than the other acting nominees, I don't see it. And yeah, uh, the Austin Butler might talk about it growing up uh, in the Jim Crow South or something. Right. <laughs> but I really do think it's going to be like the Daniels would be the most likely because everyone else just seems so like pol more polished and where they get the machine more like this, this swath of people. Yeah. And, and as you point out, everything everywhere all at once is the front runner. And those, that's what they come after when they come mm -hmm. after somebody. Jamie Lee Curtis might be the one like she, oh, she'll, yeah. she's like susceptible to that. Cause she's kind of done that a lot, but people's like, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is cool, but there's going to be like a thing that's going to be like, oh, damn it, Jamie. Well, she already stepped into the Nepo baby debate, right? Mm -hmm. And the she's, horror movie as a as a thing a representation of trauma when Halloween came out. Like, there's uh, she yeah. seems like the most likely to be like ah. That's a really good call. I could see that happening. So okay, I think we found everything ever all at once is vulnerability. Somebody <laughs> somebody involved is going to say something stupid. Yeah, because other than that, I don't see a lot of op ed hit pieces. No, I think you're right. All right, so since football is winding down, I'm getting back into baseball. I'm getting geared up. Like my, I'm a huge Dodger guy. Much to your chagrin, I'm sorry. No, it's you know what we're we're uh, adversaries. It's good to have healthy adversaries. My dad, my dad, yeah. The Nii Mets are my, are my dad's favorite squadron too. So like he, you know, I get I'm in ensconced in the Mets a little bit. So I I kind of keep tabs on them. I, I root for them a little bit. Like I feel good for that. I feel good whenever they do good. Oh, that's nice of you. What did you, how do you think their offseason went? I think it's been as good as we could possibly have hoped for. I mean, I know there's a lot of Mets fans who are disappointed that the Correa thing didn't happen. Don't be. <laughs> You're down on Correa? Well, it's very suspicious and telling uh, to me that like three different teams are like, like oh, cool, we got Correa. And then like, 
Ooh, yeah. I don't like the 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 uh, medicals on you. You can just go back to Minnesota. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Yep. And look, I mean, Steve Cohen is like you know not cheap, so it's not like he was had financial concerns here. It had to be about the actual medicals, right? Like, um, do I want to do this for ten years? Like, I, I it's not worth it if he's not going to be on the field. Yeah, and I I didn't want that. I don't like getting locked into long contracts that are that have a lot of risk, you know. I and, and Cohen has not really wanted to do that. You know, they re-signed Nimmo to a, a pretty long contract, but at a pretty low AAV, so that was a little safer. Um, I think it's been a really good offseason. You know, Mets fans have pointed out that the offense has not really improved from last year at all. But the offense was really good last year. It just wasn't good at the very end of the year when they needed it to be. So I'm all for getting some of the young plus up, getting the kids up at some point in the year. We have a couple of really highly rated prospects. And if those guys can come up and make an impact at some point the, over the course of the year, I think that has a chance to really improve the team a lot and i think the pitching staff is is really solid all the way around we replaced degrom with verlander and i was a huge degrom fan but it's kind of hard to complain about putting justin verlander on your team i don't know is it though because um i get a lot of kershaw crap out here um but like verlander i would i was statistically worse especially in the world series just yeah throwing, I, just throwing I, it out there just throwing it out there plus you're also paying scherzer which really would bother me you're paying Scherzer and Verlander like a ton of money, and they're both at the um, they're uh, the end of their careers. It would bother me to to spend that kind of money on them if I felt it was impeding Steve Cohen in any other way. I and I, I don't really think that it is. You know, it's and it's it's not my money. And a lot of fans <laughs> say a lot of fans say that without realizing. Well, it matters because there's a, a limit to how much they'll spend. But with Cohen, I'm not sure that there is. So it doesn't matter that much to me. And uh, you know, with Kershaw, look, he had this reputation of being a bad big game pitcher uh, until he didn't, you know, and then all of a sudden he was good in the World Series when he needed to be. And you know, Verlander had one pretty bad game in the World Series last year and everyone was like, oh, here's the old Justin Verlander can't pitch in the World Series. And then his second game in the World Series was much better. So, look, if the Mets get to the World Series, anything can happen at that point. I'm looking at like over the course of the season, who's going to give us the best chance to win. And I honestly think Verlander gives us a better chance than DeGrom does because I think Verlander is going to make more starts. That's true. I mean, the Dodgers picked up DeGrom and it's basically like a flyer. So I'm okay with that. And uh, honestly with the Mets, I'm just happy that they're like competitive again and they have like a real owner. Yes. Because like oh Jesus God. Christ, like I've like, Dan, the Wilpons, that reminds me of having McCourt. Like that was some dark stuff. Yeah, it's really dark because these, you know, free agents come on the market and you just know you don't have a shot at them. And yeah. when you're in New York and Los Angeles, like that should never be the case. Well, uh, look at the Angels. I mean, Artie Moreno said like, oh, I'm not selling the team anymore. Just kidding. Because uh, no one oh wanted God. to buy it because they're losing Otani to the Dodgers next year. I know. What a nightmare for Angels fans. I, I really I really feel for them. I mean, to be squandering the the talent that they've had on that team the last few years. Well, I mean, they spend, it's weird. They spend money like, you know, that t payroll isn't cheap by any means, but it's like, boy, do they throw it a bad, uh, bad stuff. And then I trout, I'm like, I get loving, loving living in the OC, but like, dude, why did you sign that? I don't know. I do not know. I mean, he, I guess he's a guy who values like, you know, consistency and he seems to care. Uh, where'd you go? More about may never get his chance to shine in like the postseason stage. No. I mean, like, if you care about baseball, 
Oh, like yeah, that's... Ex- Hold on, where'd you go? Oh, uh, yeah, I lost you for a sec, but... There you are. Uh-oh. You're back. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can hear you. Okay. No, yeah, poor poor Trout. Like, I know he's getting paid, so, like, that's kind of the trade-off, but, like, ah, uh, like, you're never going to get your moment because, like, when statistically, yeah, he's Mickey Mantle, but it's like, well, who cares because it's, like, empty calories because it's for, like, 71 Angel teams. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, I've still only seen him play, like, a few times because the Mets don't play the Angels too often, and half the time they do play the Angels, it's at 10 o'clock Eastern or 10 yeah. Eastern, and I don't stay up to watch it. So, I mean, this guy's going to go through his whole career, and I, I watch a lot of baseball, but I only have watched him play, like, 10 games. Yeah, I mean, I'm out here, and, like, I barely I barely <laughs> see him play. Yeah, it, there's just no excuse for it, man. I mean, they have to find a way. They have to find a way to get that team into the playoffs. Well, the way to do it is for Artie Moreno to sell the team to someone else, and, but he's not going to do that because the money it, it would cost him. He'd lose more money selling the team because – because he's know. done such a terrible job uh, putting the team together. Yeah, no one wants to go to Angel Stadium anymore. It's it's, it's become a hellhole. Yeah, that's awesome. a lot of hellhole. Like it's, like, I've had friends that have gone to see them when they play the Dodgers, and they're like, "Boy, this is a different environment." Yeah, I mean, look, I I'm always skeptical of the idea that a stadium is bad, so you won't go because, like, when you're sitting in your seat and it's sunny out and there's baseball being played, honestly, like. I don't care. Like, I don't care what's going I on. I know, but there are people that's like, well, it's not like fun to go to or it's like inconvenient or it's just like, oh, like it's not. I mean, I, I've been to Shea. I would go to Shea a lot like uh, in the summers and stuff. So like, you know, that's that was like the cool kind of dingy or this is just like, oh, you just haven't kept this up. I'm glad you feel that way because I, I love I mean, I grew up at Shea Stadium and I, I love it. And I, it still holds a special place in my heart. I mean, it hurts when I when people say that it was like a terrible stadium because no. How could how could the stadium where you fell in love with baseball be a terrible stadium? Yeah, and it's like the charming kind of like dingy stadium. Where like Dodger Stadium is like the nice kind of old school stadium. Like it feels yeah. like you're watching a game in the '60s still. I've still never been there. Uh, oh, it's gorgeous. I know it's it's Dodger number Stadium one on my list. Schools. Really? Um, all right. Well, tell me, tell us quickly about your baseball book that you're working on. Oh yeah, thanks. So this is uh, a book that was probably coming out sometime in 2024, hopefully around opening day. And it's tentatively titled Baseball, the Movie. And basically what it is is a serious book about baseball cinema, which is to say it takes baseball movies seriously. This isn't just like an encyclopedia of baseball films. It's not a ranking of the best baseball films. It tries to look at them as like an actual genre Mm -hmm. and uh, identify like what are the conventions at play here? And more importantly, how do those conventions change over the years you know and basically i start at pride of the yankees which is not the first baseball movie but it's to me the first important one mm-hmm. i mean it was nominated for best picture it's one of only two baseball movies nominated for best picture along with um, the natural sorry yeah no not the natural um no uh no there's three um field of dreams oh and, yeah and moneyball Oh yeah, okay. I thought that, oh, the natural was just an act. It was just Glenn Close, wasn't it? Like Glenn yeah. Close and a couple other things. Yeah, I think that's right. My bad. Uh, uh, no, it's a great movie though, and a lot of people say it's you know the best. Um, but yeah, so I'm looking at it over that period of time and how it has changed. And I don't want people to think it's too serious because I really love these movies, and I think I think it, people will find it to be a lot of fun as well. But it's been a really a lot of fun to write 
kind of watching the, all these movies over again, interviewing people who were involved with them, interviewing critics, interviewing sports writers, and, and kind of peppering those quotes uh, throughout the book. So it's, it's, it's the first book I've ever written, and, and I chose a topic that I knew I would just love to think about for a year, and that's what I've been doing. Cool. And again, a lot of those are just really good snapshots of the time, especially ones like that you actually use players. I imagine like Angels in the Outfield, like the 90s version, I'm sure was a, was kind of a trip. It's like, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a ton of them that use real players. In fact, one of my one of my favorite baseball movies that I think doesn't get enough love is Little Big League. Yeah. And the funny thing about that movie is, you know, it's about a kid who becomes the manager of the team. But in, in a weird way, it's the most realistic baseball movie because they really took great pains to make the action look realistic. Mm -hmm. And they used a lot of real players. There's like a, I guess like practically a whole team's worth of real players who make cameos on the field. And I think what the reason it works in part is because it, it grounds this ridiculous story in something that that is very real and that looks real. And, feels like a real baseball game so yeah that's a huge part of it and we'll talk about the book next time you're uh, uh, later as it comes out but did you get into the simpsons episode you know I, i'm not devoting a full chapter to that because it's it's tv i know but like that's like such an important like baseball it's probably one of the most important baseball moments of the 90s it will be referenced and uh Brockmire will be referenced and yeah. other non-movie baseball pop culture will find its way in there. I promise you. Okay. And maybe even basketball that, that would, I know it's not a <laughs> baseball movie, but Reggie Jackson's a huge part of it. Like weirdly. I, I'm a big basketball fan. I yes! actually, yeah, that movie has a lot to say about modern sports culture that it doesn't get credit for. I think. Yeah. Good and bad. Cause like the, uh, not paying players thing. I'm like, that's a take. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the Savannah Banana. Like those guys don't get paid, you know. I mean, right, that's, exactly. That's, that's actually happening. All right, where can I, where can the good people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter pretty much all the time at Noah Gattel, uh, two T's, two L's. And I also just want to plug: I have an annual virtual talk that I do on the Oscars uh, through the Smithsonian. It's actually through Smithsonian Associates. Ooh. So if you go to si dot edu or just google smithsonian associates noah gattel you'll find my talk it's on tuesday march 7th at 6 45 p.m and it's a lot of fun i go through the history of the oscars and the dynamics at play that we've been talking about in this year's nominations and then i spend the last 20 minutes doing like a full predictions section oh nice all right cool Thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you for uh, nerding out with the award stuff because I rarely get to do this um, on my on my normal episodes because my co-host doesn't care. So I, this <laughs> this really meant a lot to me. I'm a huge awards dork, so this is this is a treat. Oh man, anytime. It was a great chat. Thank you so much for your time, and you have a wonderful night. Go Mets. Go Dodgers. <laughs>